Coming up on NTD News, with the full House ready to vote on authorizing the impeachment inquiry into President Biden, Republican leadership appears to have support. Find out why Speaker Johnson now describes it as a legal step. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley picking up steam, getting a key endorsement. Can she overtake Governor DeSantis or close the gap with former President Trump? We have the latest. Former President Trump looks to pause his J6 case. As special counsel Jack Smith races to the Supreme Court, Trump's lawyers are asking for appeals to play out. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky pushing for aid in Washington. He says the idea of ceding land to end the war is insane. And Biden says he can't make any promises on funding before Congress breaks for Christmas. Ten Israeli soldiers killed in Gaza and a complex hostage mission ends in disappointment. Meanwhile, the United Nations pauses a non-binding resolution demanding a ceasefire. And a public service announcement, federal agencies warn of potentially increased violence over the holidays as a result of the Israel-Hamas war. A watershed moment for school choice. That's according to a nonprofit that cites expanded voucher programs. An advocate tells us his view on why it's happening and what parents want. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Good morning and welcome to NTD. Today is Wednesday, December 13th. Our lead story today, House Republicans aim to formalize their probe into President Biden with a House vote on the impeachment inquiry. It comes after they have been investigating President Biden and his family for months. NTD's Melina Wisecup has the story. House Speaker Mike Johnson says that the impeachment inquiry vote is a legal step and not a political one. And he says that for a number of reasons. But to sum it up, he essentially says that there's information that they need that they're not getting from the White House. For example, documents from the National Archives. He also says there are witnesses in the White House, particularly employees there, that the White House is preventing from coming and testifying. The White House has pushed back, saying that they have complied. They've provided thousands of documents from the Treasury to these committee chairmen, although Republicans say that there's still more information that they need. We have no choice to fulfill our constitutional responsibility. We have to take the next step. We're not making a political decision. It's not. It's a legal decision. And another reason the speaker says this is a legal decision is to enforce their subpoenas in court. For example, like the subpoena on Hunter Biden and the potential contempt of Congress charges that they may be pressing if Hunter Biden does not show up for that 9.30 a.m. deposition. But at this point in time, it's unclear whether or not the the president's son will show up. The last we heard from his legal team is that they requested to do a public uh, testimony instead of a private one. However, Republicans rejected that and the chairman of these committees say they have not heard back from Hunter's legal team since then. President Biden, when asked about why he engaged with his son's foreign business associates, stuck along the same line of messaging that he's used throughout this entire probe. That is, that it's not true. We'll show you the president's most recent comments on this, as well as what Republicans were telling me about whether or not the evidence they have at this moment warrants a vote on impeachment itself. I'm not going to comment that I did not, and 
It's just a bunch of lies. It's the oldest story um, that is out there where, you know, a politician takes money. And um, it's becoming more and more evident that that has happened. But we need to make sure that the American people are able to see the proof like we are seeing the proof. Joe Biden is innocent until proven guilty. We need to bring the facts forward. It seems to be every time they ask for uh, some records, something else is revealed. Um, so I don't think that we're quite there yet. Um, and so that's, that's why I'm willing to vote for the inquiry. So you can really see how Republicans are careful not to jump the gun on this. They'll say that there's evidence, but they're hesitant to say that the vote on the actual impeachment itself is imminent. Some are anticipating that this inquiry will wrap up by the spring, at which point it's highly likely that the House will take a vote on impeaching the president. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. To delve further into the vote today, potentially formalizing the impeachment inquiry, we hear from Hugh Fike, the Director of Government Relations at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Hugh, good morning to you. Good morning. Do you think that the GOP members who are in Biden districts now telling media outlets that they are open to the vote, do you think that that is going to push this over the top and, and advance this? Yeah, well, I spent uh, over seven years on Capitol Hill, and I can tell you that very few instances I can remember, probably only on one hand, of uh, times that a bill came to the floor without knowing the outcome. I think that's you know pretty critical um, in any effort to bring a legislative uh, bill or resolution or whatever it might be to the House floor. So if uh, the Speaker feels like he's uh, you know got the votes, then he's going to bring it to the floor and. You know, as I said, only a handful of times that I can remember um, has something come to the floor and the outcome hasn't been known. Yeah, and this is pretty obvious. Just clarifying this, this is not a vote to impeach Biden. This is simply just furthering their moves that they made. Speaker McCarthy, he unilaterally launched this impeachment inquiry and now they're seeking to formalize that. So that's basically what's at stake here. So what further subpoena power will come from an official vote to formalize it? Yeah, well, up until this point, it's basically been a legislative uh, investigation, right? So Ways and Means, Oversight, and Judiciary have all been investigating this from a legislative standpoint using the normal powers. Um, but as your intro to this segment said, it's going to formalize the inquiry, which means that the uh, executive branch, in theory, should be more responsive to the requests. Right now, the legislative branch is, or the executive branch is not taking this as seriously as they should be. So this uh, formally says that. And, um, you know, President Polk, I guess one time said that this should reach into the far excesses of the executive branch. Um, and so this will require them to hopefully be more responsive to the uh, to the, the Article 2's uh, investigation and oversight of this matter. So it just takes what they're currently doing and formalizes it and, and gives, um, you know, the, the, the uh, executive branch a more formal um, you know, resolution for what they're trying to accomplish. Right. And on that note, Speaker Johnson is accusing the White House, as we mentioned, of impeding the investigation of House Republicans by blocking witnesses and documents. Will a yes vote today on this inquiry break through that? It should. But this is, you know, in large ways, an administration that's not taking the law seriously. Uh, you just have to look at the southern border and what's going on and the, the lack of enforcement of current laws. So I think this will um, at least put the ball more firmly in, in the, the, you know, the House, House's hands um, and, you know, could lead to things like holding certain people in contempt of subpoenas that don't show up. Um, so this just gives them another uh, uh, tool in their toolbox to advance what they see as, you know, clear corruption and uh, a trail of, 
uh, of bad givings over the course of you know a, a number of years prior to when the president uh, became president as vice president, and then if, if there's any current uh, you know suspicion of corruption, that this will hopefully force people to show up to the table. Right, and Speaker Johnson was addressing some concerns that this wasn't quite a snappy process, and he was just saying that they need to bring out the facts and these type of quests here, they take time sometimes for things to emerge and for different developments to happen. There are just as a razor thin majority in the House right now, those three Republicans in Biden districts said they would vote for it. One Republican said he will not. Just in 10 seconds, do you think that that's going to pose any last minute challenges? No, I, I don't think so. I think you come to the you know the same conclusion as before. Something of this magnitude, you're you're hopefully know the outcome before it hits the floor. So I don't think so. I think this will this will sail through hopefully. Hugh Fike, Director of Government Relations at the Conservative Partnership Institute. I appreciate it. Thank you. Presidential hopeful Nikki Haley gaining momentum. The former South Carolina governor picked up a key endorsement from the free-spirited state of New Hampshire. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on that and a look at the race with the first primaries fast approaching. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu made the announcement he was throwing his weight behind Haley on Tuesday at a town hall event. There was a sweet older woman who has come to a lot of events. And I saw her coming in here and she said, so are you going to finally endorse Nikki Haley for president? You bet your ass I am. Let's get this thing done. Haley basked in the governor's support, saying it doesn't get any better than this. To go and get endorsed by the live free or die governor is about as rock solid of an endorsement as we could hope for. The move by Sununu is the latest step in his long-running effort to slow down Donald Trump's march to the 2024 GOP nomination and a potential blow to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's campaign, who had hoped to go two for two after winning Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' endorsement. Both states' Republican primaries will be held in January. DeSantis reacted to the news at a town hall in Iowa, saying that even a campaigner as good as Sununu was not going to paper over Nikki being an establishment candidate. Haley has recently picked up some big donors as she rises in the polls. The pair are locked in a bitter battle to emerge as the leading Republican alternative to former President Donald Trump. Haley made her case against Trump a few days ago in Iowa, saying she believes he was the right president back when he was elected. I think he broke the things that needed to be broken. I agreed with a lot of his policies. I had a great working relationship with him. But rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. Haley says you can't have a country in disarray, in a world on fire, and survive this chaos. Trump still enjoys a strong lead, according to the latest polls. A real clear politics poll average shows Trump in front in New Hampshire with over 45 percent. Haley has moved into second there with over 18 percent, with DeSantis slipping down to fourth with over 8 percent. Trump also leads in Iowa, where he has about 50 percent. DeSantis is in second there with nearly 20 percent, and Haley in third with over 15 percent. Meanwhile, a recent Reuters poll has Trump over Biden by 2 percent nationally. But independent candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. could wield a strong influence over the presidential race. The same Reuters poll showed that Kennedy could take more votes from Biden than Trump. Trump's lead grew to five points against Biden when respondents could also vote for Kennedy.
Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Updates in former President Trump's legal battles. Trump's lawyers are looking to pause proceedings in the federal J6 case after special counsel Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to weigh in on Trump's presidential immunity. Trump's legal team wants an appeal process to play out after a ruling from District Judge Tanya Chutkin. Chutkin ruled Trump is not immune from prosecution after leaving office for alleged crimes committed during his time as president. Trump maintains his innocence and accuses Smith of attempting a Hail Mary play to bypass his appeal. Smith plans to use Trump's cell phone data from the January 6 time period. Smith will call an expert witness who extracted and reviewed the White House cell phone data. The data could include phones of Trump aides. Smith won't necessarily have access to conversations, but dates and times that calls were made. Smith is looking to avoid delays and keep the March 4th trial date on track. Supreme Court justices signaled they would expedite Smith's request by ordering Trump's legal team to respond by Wednesday next week. And coming up, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky pushing for aid in Washington. He says the idea of ceding land to end the war is insane. And Biden says he can't make any promises on funding before Congress breaks for Christmas. Iran-backed Houthi rebels disrupting shipping in the Red Sea. We get some analysis of U.S. involvement in the region from a retired Navy officer when we come back. Welcome back. President Biden says he's not making Ukraine any promises on more funding, but is hopeful Congress will come through on negotiations. After meeting yesterday, Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warned that consequences would be swift if money isn't there by the year's end. Both say Ukraine's ability to hold its territory is vital to the world's security and that failure against Russia would embolden other aggressors on the world stage. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the push for more aid to Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met with lawmakers behind closed doors Tuesday on his third trip to the U.S. Capitol since the Russian invasion began. No joint sessions of Congress and appearing no closer in convincing reluctant Republicans to sign off on President Biden's funding request. Biden assures support, but says the U.S. risks losing the ability to help Ukraine react to urgent operational demands. We'll continue to supply Ukraine with critical weapons and equipment as long as we can. Biden says Russian President Vladimir Putin is banking on the U.S. failing to deliver. We need to ensure Putin continues to fail in Ukraine and Ukraine to succeed. And the best way for that to, to do that is to pass the supplement. Zelensky flat out rejected the idea of giving up any territory to Russia to stop the war, calling the suggestion insane. He says that's because it's not just about territory, but children, families, and part of Ukraine's society. We dream of a Christmas in a peacetime, of course, and we are working to turn our battlefield success into peace. Congress has approved no new assistance for Kyiv since Republicans took the majority last January. House Speaker Mike Johnson, after meeting Zelensky, said the Biden administration must provide more details about how the money would be used. What the Biden administration seems to be asking for is billions of additional dollars with no appropriate oversight, no clear strategy to win, and, and none of the answers that I think the American people are owed. 
The White House told Congress earlier this month the government will no longer have funding to provide Ukraine more weapons after the end of the year. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer maintains the need is urgent. First, the military needs, but second, Europe and many other allies will say, what is going on here? They're not giving, they're not giving them the aid. With just three days left before Congress recesses for the year on Friday, Republicans remain mostly opposed to any passage of a bill that contains over $60 billion in Ukraine aid, unless it comes along with funding to stop illegal immigrants from crossing the southern border. The U.S. has already provided Ukraine $111 billion over the course of the war. Bolstered by U.S. arms, intelligence and humanitarian aid, Ukraine was able to fend off Russia's initial attempt to sweep the country. But Kyiv failed to break through Russian defensive lines in a major counteroffensive push this year, and now Russia is on the offensive in the east. Ukrainian officials say a missile assault on Kyiv Wednesday injured at least 34 people, damaging homes in a children's hospital with debris and shrapnel. Ukraine says its air defense systems downed all missiles targeting its capital, and that it was the second missile attack on Kyiv this week. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. More on foreign affairs, Yemen's Iran-backed Houthi rebels disrupting shipping in the Red Sea in response to Israel's war in Gaza. To learn more about what response the U.S. should take, we hear from Lieutenant Commander Stephen Rogers, a retired U.S. Navy officer at the Office of Naval Intelligence. Lieutenant Rogers, thank you for your time this morning. Well, my pleasure, thank you. Norwegian tanker was struck by missiles from Houthis yesterday. This comes after several attacks by the group to disrupt shipping in that key choke point. What should the U.S. do and can do in order to prevent this from happening? Well, the United States eventually is going to have to move from a defensive posture to an offensive posture. It seems to me that these missile strikes and these drone attacks are increasing uh, all at the behest of Iran. Uh, at one point, uh, a disaster could occur. If one of those missiles hit a U.S. Uh, warship, uh, we're going to find ourselves in a big problem there. So the U.S. has to take some real aggressive offensive action to put an end to this. Right. And NSC spokesman John Kirby was saying that they were working with international partners to create this multinational task force to patrol those waters. Do you think that that is going to be sufficient? Not at all. Look, we haven't learned our lesson. This reminds me of uh, the uh, beginning days of Vietnam. Uh, the situation we have here is that we're dealing with uh, terrorist organizations. There's no negotiation with these individuals. They know one thing, strength. Uh, Ronald Reagan had it right, uh, uh, peace through strength. Uh, so you share with them nothing on the table but everything on the battlefield and let them know uh, uh, what's going to happen to them if they continue their offensive actions. Right, and certainly dropping them from helicopters onto peaceful ships, maritime waters there, that's obviously indicative of a terrorist group. They have been taken off the terrorist list as a technicality here for several reasons. Now, this Bob Almandab Strait, that is a critical route for global shipping. What is at stake here for the United States if they allow these Houthi rebels to continue to operate this way? Well, very critical for global shipping. A lot of cargo, oil. Uh, if, that, uh, if those straits are taken over, uh, again, by Iran, remember, these terrorists are just proxies. Uh, they're being used by Iran. Uh, it could cripple a lot of economies around the world if those shipping can't get through. So, again, at one point, uh, the United States of America with allies, hopefully allies will join us, uh, are going to have to make sure that that doesn't happen, or we're all going to be affected in somehow, some manner, especially economically. 
There are many means of deterrent towards Iran, whether that's financial, diplomatic, military. Do you think that there is a way for the United States to put pressure on Iran, or is it simply that, as you said, they have to change from a defensive posture to an offensive posture on the actual Houthi rebels themselves? Look, sanctions haven't worked. Money hasn't worked. We tried to buy them off during the Obama administration, and now with the Biden administration, the Iranian government only knows one language, and that's power. The United States has projected a lot of power by putting ships in the area, uh, by putting troops in uh, uh, the uh, Mideast. That hasn't worked. They got to use that power, and they got to use it very decisively and strategically. And do you think that if the United States continues to respond in the Red Sea, that this risks evolving this into a wider conflict? Oh, no doubt about it. Again, uh, look at the Iranian government believes, and perhaps our enemies around the world now believe, as a result of our uh, situation in Afghanistan, where we withdrew our troops, uh, they believe we don't have the will. They know we have the power, but they believe we don't have the will to strike back, and that's very dangerous. So we need to strike back. We need to hit them and hit them hard. And believe me, they'll respond by withdrawing any attempts uh, to uh, uh, continue harassment of U.S. Uh, forces and as well as uh, Israel. And when you say hit them and hit them hard, who are you referring to? Iran, the Houthis? Iran, both of them. At the beginning, look, I would say going after the Houthis, and that would send a signal to Iran. If that doesn't stop them, then, well, you've got to go after the Iranian government in Iran. Right, and there are some lawmakers who are more hawkish on this in line with what you're saying here. For example, Senator Tom Cotton, he was saying that there needs to be massive retaliation for those attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq, in Iran, and in Iran, and oh, U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria following those Iran-backed militia groups attacking it. However, if we look at the actual plausibility of a war with Iran, that's no small order, given that Iran ranks 17 on the global firepower ranking, and war games show that they would have a chance of sinking U.S. ships and that an actual full-scale invasion would require 1.6 million U.S. troops, 10 times that committed to Iraq war at any given time. So it's, it's definitely a very serious endeavor. It is serious. Look, we have to make the attack on Iran uh, very, very decisive. Uh, Look, it should look like the uh, shock and awe. Remember shock and awe Iraq? That should look like a fireworks display when we get through with Iran. Uh, Iran's not going away. They've been around a long time, and they have no friends in the Mideast. Uh, the United States has to become the world power, the world leader again for freedom and liberty. And the way you do that is that you use the strength that you have. Nobody wants a war. Nobody wants to white in this. But Iran is uh, putting their bets and cards on the table that we're going to do absolutely nothing as time goes on. Well, it's time to do something. Get off the defense, get on the offensive, but make sure your first strike is decisive. Well, Iran is a large state sponsor of terrorism, so that is definitely a very high concern. Lieutenant Commander Stephen Rogers, retired U.S. Navy officer at the Office of Naval Intelligence, thank you again. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, hope turns to disappointment as a complex hostage rescue operation ends with the discovery of bodies and a deadly incident for IDF soldiers operating in a Hamas stronghold. Federal agencies warn there could be an increased risk of violence over the holiday season as a result of the conflict in Gaza. The president of Harvard gets to stay on the job, but she is facing another scandal, in addition to the backlash for her comments on anti-Semitism at Harvard. Get those stories when we come back.
It's good to have you back with us. We're going to Israel now. A complex hostage rescue operation ends in tragedy. A woman kidnapped from the Nova Music Festival and a soldier kidnapped while on active duty were both found dead. IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari discusses the discovery. Sadly, we did not reach them in time. Our special forces located the bodies of the hostage inside an underground infrastructure in a densely populated area in Gaza. Hamas is holding our people hostage in brutal conditions while hiding among and under the people of Gaza. Among and under the people of Gaza. This makes our hostage rescue operation in Gaza complex, but it will not deter us. The Israeli army reported today that 10 IDF soldiers were killed in tense fighting in Gaza, including several officers and two senior commanders. The Times of Israel reported that infantry soldiers from the Golani Brigade were carrying out search operations in a heavily fortified Hamas stronghold in northern Gaza. Some were reportedly ambushed and killed. Others died trying to save those ambushed. The Israeli army on Wednesday also released videos showing strikes in Lebanon and Syria. It says IDF aircraft and tanks struck a number of military posts in Syria. The IDF also says it hit military infrastructure and a launch post belonging to the Hezbollah terrorist organization in Lebanon. The United Nations yesterday passed a non-binding resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Over three-quarters of the nearly 200-member General Assembly backed the move. The resolution was passed on the grounds of avoiding a humanitarian crisis in the region. In addition, it demands the immediate and unconditional release of all hostages and compliance by both sides to follow international law regarding the protection of civilians. Amendments from Austria and the U.S. condemned the Hamas terror group were rejected. Both failed to secure a two-thirds majority vote to pass. Resolutions passed by the General Assembly are not legally binding, but carry political weight. Israel's ambassador to the UN condemned the passage of the resolution, calling it hypocritical and saying it would ultimately aid the terror group's goal to destroy Israel. The United States vetoed a ceasefire resolution in the Security Council last week. It was approved by a majority of the 15-member body. President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu are trading tough talk about plans for a post-war Gaza. Speaking at a Democratic fundraiser Tuesday, Biden said Israel is starting to lose support. Here's the story. Nearly two months after the leaders of the U.S. and Israel met to show unity, criticism has slipped into the commentary. Here's what President Biden said at a Hanukkah reception Monday after pledging to continue military assistance to Israel. But we have to be careful. They have to be careful. The whole world's public opinion can shift overnight. We can't let that happen. Tuesday, the president told Democratic donors Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu must change, even if the Israeli government opposes a two-state solution. Netanyahu admitted there is disagreement, though a senior advisor says it's important to put the disagreement into context. We agree on the need to defeat Hamas, that Israel is within its right and within its obligation to our people to destroy Hamas, that we have to see a new situation in the Gaza Strip. The current situation is drawing critics of a growing humanitarian crisis. A Doctors Without Borders official says living conditions can barely be described as such. People are displaced once, twice, 
sometimes more. Um, they just don't know where to go anymore. U.S. officials say the U.S. is pressuring Israel to open up the Karem Shalom border crossing to allow more aid. The first trucks were inspected Tuesday, but still can't go directly to Gaza. For us to be able to get in with anywhere near the level of, of humanitarian assistance that is needed, we need a ceasefire. We need an end to the fighting. The IDF continues to hand out videos showing its fight against Hamas. A White House official says Wednesday, Biden will meet with family members of American hostages held by Hamas, a reminder of shared interests despite differing views. The FBI and Department of Homeland Security are warning of an increased threat of violence over the holidays as a result of the Israel-Hamas war. That's according to a public service announcement made yesterday. Authorities say the war will likely increase the threat of violence, especially against large holiday gatherings or protests throughout winter. The warning comes as part of several announcements made by the two agencies since the start of the war, which asked the public to remain vigilant and report any threats of violence. Harvard President Claudine Gay will keep her job. The head of the Ivy League school drew backlash for her comments last week at a congressional hearing on anti-Semitism. In a statement on Tuesday, Harvard University's highest governing body said they have decided to keep Claudine Gay as president. Gay has faced calls from lawmakers and alumni donors to resign over her response to anti-Semitism. The Harvard Corporation said, Our extensive deliberations affirm our confidence that President Gay is the right leader to help our community heal and to address the very serious societal issues we are facing. Leaders of the Jewish community criticized Gay for failing to step up. The academic leaders have not stepped up. Academic leaders should be leading and teaching people on campus what's right, what's wrong. And yes, that might not be the exact course material, but what's right and what's wrong needs to be fought out in these halls. During a House hearing last week, lawmakers asked Gay if calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard's code of conduct. Gay said it depends on the context. Amid the backlash, there were some who defended her answers. Well, I fully support our testimony before Congress. I do believe that the situation has been taken out of context in the emotions of the immediate moment. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik is one of the lawmakers who had heated exchanges with Gay. She reacted to Harvard's decision on Tuesday. This is a moral failure of Harvard's leadership and higher education leadership at the highest levels. And the only change they have made to their code of conduct, where they failed to condemn calls for genocide of the Jewish people, the only update to the code of conduct is to allow a plagiarist as the president of Harvard. The Harvard president is also embroiled in a plagiarism scandal. In a series of posts on X this weekend, investigative journalists Chris Brunette and Christopher Rufo shared their findings. They concluded that Gay copied entire paragraphs by other scholars nearly word by word in her PhD thesis in 1997. Gay didn't appear to quote or attribute the scholars. The Harvard Corporation addressed plagiarism allegations in their statement on Tuesday. They said they first became aware of allegations against three of Gay's articles in October, and the school conducted an investigation. What they concluded is that Gay didn't violate Harvard's standards for research misconduct, but they admitted that she didn't have adequate citation in a few cases. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. House and Senate leaders of both political parties joined together at a menorah lighting at the Capitol yesterday. They denounced anti-Semitism and praised the Jewish holiday Hanukkah. 
Rabbi Levi Shemtom lit the candles on the menorah marking the sixth day of Hanukkah. He said that well-meaning people across the world are in pain over the Hamas attack against Israel. The rabbi said that all of humanity will remain in captivity until Hamas is destroyed, defeated that is, and all hostages are returned. Several lawmakers spoke at the ceremony. But we must remember that the only way to drive out darkness is to overwhelm it with light. Israel is in mourning, and America mourns with her. Families are praying for the return of innocent loved ones, including several Americans from captivity. But the story of the Jewish people, the story of the Maccabees, and the story of Hanukkah is one of resilience, of hope in the face of oppression. A Polish lawmaker used a fire extinguisher to put out Hanukkah candles in the country's parliament. The action yesterday provoked outrage among officials. Here's the story. A Polish lawmaker used a fire extinguisher to put out Hanukkah candles in the country's parliament on Tuesday. It happened during an event with members of the Jewish community. As Jegosz Braun extinguished the flames, a woman asked the Confederation Party lawmaker what he was doing. He responded, Those who take parts in acts of satanic worship should be ashamed. Afterwards, Braun took to the podium in the chamber, where he once again described Hanukkah as satanic and said he was restoring normality. Braun's actions have set off a firestorm of outrage. This is unacceptable and it must never happen again, said newly appointed Prime Minister Donald Tusk. This is a disgrace. The incident took place just before a key vote on whether to approve Tusk. Speaker Shimon Havovnia excluded Braun from the sitting of Parliament and said he would inform prosecutors about his actions. He later said that Braun would lose half of his salary for three months and all parliamentary expenses for six months. Members of the Jewish community, including children, had gone to Parliament at Havovnia's invitation for annual Hanukkah celebrations. Those who were present during the incident reported difficulty breathing after being covered in powder from the extinguisher. Braun's Confederation Party won 18 seats in the October 15 election, less than expected. The party said in a post on social media platform X that it condemned Braun's behavior. Stay with us. A Democratic campaign is the first to use a new AI campaign caller capable of customizing one-on-one -on -one conversations. We get the details from the host of NTD Business in a moment. Welcome back. Joining me now is NTD Business host Don Ma to discuss the world's first artificial intelligence powered political campaign caller. The AI campaign volunteer it's called Ashley, and it's not your typical robocaller. So, Don, what's so special about Ashley? Well, uh, it's a completely synthetic uh, um, robocaller, but her responses are not pre-recorded. Actually, it's none of them are uh, pre-recorded. -pre it's capable of having a, an unlimited number of phone calls at the same time, and it's customized uh, for each individual as well. So, I mean, the secret here, uh, we have already, uh, you mentioned already, uh, it's because uh, she's powered by AI, and uh, this is generative AI similar to ChatGPT, um, and it, it's a caller for uh, 
Shemaine Daniels uh, campaign for Congress and over the weekend Ashley called thousands of Pennsylvania voters. Um, she starts the phone call by introducing uh, herself and then uh, clarifying that uh, it is artificial intelligence and it's not a human. Uh, it can analyze uh, voters profiles uh, to have conversations around their key issues uh, it, and, and uh, the benefits of of course having AI is that uh, it always shows up for work uh, has perfect recall of Daniel's positions uh, you know and if you hang up on it it's not going to feel bad because you know it is AI it's fluent in over 20 languages so that makes it very convenient for you to connect to uh, uh, voters who speak different languages and I think one of the best things about uh, this for her campaign is that it probably saves them a lot of money. Just having this one uh, AI caller, uh, it can uh, reach out to thousands uh, in Pennsylvania. And one voter actually said that he enjoyed hearing from Ashley, even though he could tell immediately that it was AI and not a human. Well, it definitely sounds like it could be a huge advantage for some of these campaigns, just as long as the people that it calls don't get annoyed and view it as a spam call and then have a negative view of that candidate. So what are some of the limitations to this? Right, of course. Uh, it seems like uh, generative AI could uh, be ushering a new era for political campaigning, but the developments do worry uh, some because uh, there's concern of whether this is going to worsen disinformation and misinformation, uh, you know, because for many who have used generative AI tools like ChatGPT, um, they have experienced situations where uh, the AI chatbot will give them answers that are incorrect or made up, in fact. I mean, personally, I have experienced this as well. Uh, but if you're just having fun with the AI chatbot, I mean, it doesn't really matter. But the stakes are much higher in a political context. And um, it, it could be harmful in in certain situations when the stakes are higher. And Daniels says uh, that this AI chatbot only uh, produces factual information. But, you know, factual information, that's only uh, based on the judgment of the designers of the chatbot. Uh, AI chatbots definitely do have uh, either left or right leaning tendency. Um, so the news outlet Political did a test call with Ashley and asked about Daniel's Republican opponent, um, Scott Perry. Uh, so they asked Ashley about Daniel and sorry about Scott and then Daniel it, it responded saying that Daniels has concerns about Perry's involvement in the January 6th insurrection and that uh, as well as his attempt to overturn the 2020 election so that was basically Ashley's response I mean at least they gave Ashley a, a metallic voice uh, so that uh, you immediately know you're talking to uh, an AI um, so I mean yeah, it seems like there are pros and cons to this. Right, yeah, and AI is definitely making a lot of waves. We saw a huge protest in Hollywood centered on the use of AI. Now it's entering the political sphere, and we've also seen deep fakes, so really have to be vigilant about this. Let's switch topics now. Netflix, it just released some data for its streaming platform. Tell us a little more about this. Yeah, sure. Uh, it seems like Netflix uh, is out with its most transparent data so far about its viewership. The streaming service pledged to increase transparency about how many hours certain programs are streamed as part of the Writers Guild of America contract ratified in October. One of the top shows that the Netflix viewers spent the most time watching is The Night Agent season one with more than 812 million hours. 
uh, Ginny and Georgia season two and The Glory season one had more than 660 million hours each. Also Wednesday season one and Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story had more than 500 million hours each. That's all lost on me. I don't watch as much TV as I, maybe I should, but hopefully you can fill us in on that at some point. But now, Don, let's, let's see here. These classic Christmas movies, are they getting a boost in viewership during this time right now? And speaking of that, are we going to see things that people need to keep in mind when they're out shopping and spending, you know, trying to buy gifts this Christmas season? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so when it comes to that, it, it seems like uh, you got to keep those shipping deadlines in mind. You don't want your gift to arrive after Christmas. So to ensure gifts are under the tree in time, be mindful of uh, when your packages need to be shipped out. The United States Postal Service recommends that holiday mail be sent out by December 16th for it to arrive by Christmas. But if you're doing priority, you have four extra days to give those packages uh, to the post office. Uh, meanwhile, FedEx recommends a shipping date no later than December 15th for five-day home delivery, and UPS recommends packages be shipped out on December 19th using three-day select uh, if they are to be delivered by Saturday, December 23rd. Really important that those gifts get there right as Santa's coming. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Don Ma, host of NTD Business, thank you for your time. Thank you. And stay with us, a school choice advocate explains what some are calling a watershed moment for the movement. He tells us that it's because parents want strong fundamentals in education and not indoctrination. Get that story in just a minute. Good to have you back with us. We're turning now to education. This year is said to be a watershed moment for school choice. That's according to the nonprofit EdChoice. It says so because states have created or expanded voucher programs. I asked Corey DeAngelis, a senior fellow for the American Federation for Children, if he agrees with this. Take a look. Yeah, absolutely. Over the past two years alone, we've had 10 states go all in on school choice, passing universal school choice programs, allowing every single family regardless of income, background, or zip code, to take their children's state-funded education dollars to the education provider of their choosing. And this is because the teachers' unions overplayed their hand. They fought to keep the schools closed as long as possible, showing parents exactly what was happening in the classroom, showing that public schools in far too many cases were focusing on indoctrination as opposed to education. And parents have woken up and they're, de they're demanding more freedom and choice in education for their kids. Yeah, and on top of that, at least seven states have actually created new programs to allow more access to these vouchers. So what happens when someone gets a voucher in terms of their child's education? How does it improve that? Well, look, parents know and care about their kids' educational needs more than anybody else, far more than bureaucrats sitting in offices hundreds of miles away. They know their kids best, so when they choose a better school for them, obviously they're going to be in a safer environment, they're going to be more satisfied, it improves their educational outcomes, they're more likely to attend college and, and to graduate as well and get a better job. So this is a, an obvious win-win solution. It's good for the public schools too because it ups, they up their game in response to competition. School choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats. Right, and when we look at the other side here, the superintendent of Fort Wayne, Indiana Schools said that school vouchers are an assault on public education, saying that it takes money away from struggling public schools and these students that are maybe low income, and it gives it to the middle class students. What's your reaction? 
Look, allowing families to choose their grocery store isn't an assault on Walmart because you can choose other options. Allowing families to choose their school isn't an assault on the public schools. You can cho still choose your public schools. If you like your public school, you can keep it for real this time, unlike with your doctor. But we've had 26 to 29 studies finding positive effects of school choice competition on the outcomes in the public schools. And the money doesn't belong to the schools anyway, whether it's a public or private institution. The money's meant for educating the child. It should follow them to wherever they're getting the best education. And that public school option is and still should be on the, on the table. And it is with, with private school choice options. You can choose the, the, the education provider that works best for you. In a way, sort of the free market of education playing out here. Now, Arkansas was a big proponent of school choice. Governor Huckabee Sanders, actually, when she initially took office, she was providing universal school vouchers. And that was in part because of critical race theory and other things like that. I know we talk about the effects of the education system based on the pandemic. But what more can you tell us about these type of ideologies that pervade the system? Yeah, look, a lot of families who thought their kids were in good public schools because of the standardized test scores started to see another dimension of school quality that's far more important, whether your kid's getting a, a curriculum that aligns with your values. Parents don't want to send their kids to institutions where they feel like they're being um, indoctrinated in ways that don't align with their own values and, and to, to hate their country and, and their families. And so, uh, you know, critical race theory divides kids by, by race and, and to the oppressors and the oppressed. And so when we see a lot of the, these Hamas uh, protests at schools, I think it's a, it kind of results from the, uh, the Marxist um, uh, ideology behind critical race theory. It, it pits us against each other, and parents don't want that. They just want an education focused on the basics, math, reading, and writing. They want their kids to get a better job when they're older. They don't want to have a polit politicized curriculum injected into the classroom. Well, thank you for the analysis. Corey DeAngelis, Senior Fellow at the American Federation for Children. And thank you so much for having me. Just about one minute to 8 a.m., so the second part of our broadcast starts now. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Our top stories, House Republicans might get a chance to interview Hunter Biden today, but it's still not clear if he will show up for his closed-door deposition. The Oversight Committee gets ready to report contempt of Congress. Nikki Haley scores a win, gaining a key endorsement with the January primaries fast approaching. Can she pass DeSantis as the top Trump alternative? Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky pushing for aid in Washington. He says the idea of ceding land to end the war is insane. And Biden says he can't make any promises on funding before Congress breaks for Christmas. 
10 Israeli soldiers die in Gaza, some ambushed in a Hamas stronghold. And the UN passes a resolution demanding a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. The United Nations General Assembly voted in favor of demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. Amendments from Austria and the U.S. were rejected. An Israeli family released from Hamas recounts their experience as hostages. Stay tuned to hear their story. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Today is Wednesday, December 13th. Today's top news, House Republicans hope to interview Hunter Biden behind closed doors today. The first son is reportedly in Washington, but didn't say if he would appear. GOP leaders say they will hold him in contempt of Congress if he ignores their subpoena. Hunter Biden's lawyers wanted any testimony to be public over concerns that comments might be taken out of context. Republicans say filming the deposition and releasing the transcript would prevent that. Oversight Chair James Comer told CNN the plan is to sit in the committee room this morning and see if Hunter Biden appears. Comer says he hopes he does because the panel has simple questions like what did he do to receive millions of dollars around the world and what role his father played. Initiating contempt proceedings would take a separate meeting and vote to take it out of committee and to a full floor vote. That's unlikely to happen before the holiday recess because of a three-day notice requirement to report a contempt resolution. To look at Hunter Biden's expected appearance before lawmakers, from a legal standpoint, we're bringing in Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel of the National Legal and Policy Center. Paul, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Do you expect Hunter Biden to appear at the closed-door deposition? Well, I think people are taking bets on the over-under here. Uh, my, my guess is that he will show up, but uh, I don't think he will uh, sit for the deposition. He'll come in there, and now that he's been indicted, he'll take the fifth. Uh, he'll complain about not being out uh, in the open, uh, hearing as he wanted, etc., because otherwise, as you said, uh, he uh, risks being held in contempt of Congress, even though, as you said, they're going on recess here soon. Uh, but, uh, you know, that contempt can still be handled uh, when they get back very easily. So Comer said they would release transcripts, they would record it. What are the pros and cons of Hunter Biden having a closed-door deposition prior to a public testimony? Well, the closed-door session, which is done all the time, in, in, in oversight committees is clearly beneficial to get to the bottom of all this because under the closed door rules and procedures you can ask uh, questions upon questions there's no time limit it can go for several hours uh, and there and you don't have as you do in the open session you have uh, a five minute rule where the uh, person asking the question uh, only has a few minutes and can't really do any serious follow-up. Now, they, they plan to have an open session uh, after the closed session, as they do in all other cases. So it's to the advantage of uh, uh, the House to do a closed-door session. And the uh, cons may be that Hunter Biden will have a talking point saying, oh, they're going to be taking my 
questions uh, out of context and they're going to leak certain information, etc. But uh, as you said, they'll release the transcript and the videotape of the deposition in any event. Right, and Paul, and that deposition is scheduled for just under an hour and a half, so we will see, but Chairman J James Comer, he said that they just have simple questions. What did you do to get all these millions from around the world, and what role did your father play in this? Will those simple questions alone lead to any new information that hasn't already been discovered? Well, uh, I think uh, they sound like simple questions, but uh, that when you unpack those questions, it gets into a lot of details. I mean, you've got uh, other questions, you know, they have to get into. Uh, they do have, as you know, and uh, a lot of information already, but a lot of it is not completely verified. So these questions will be able uh, to get to the bottom of it and get to the truth of what uh, Hunter Biden did and what was his connection uh, with his father on all these uh, type of dealings with foreign countries. Well, certainly there could be a lot of lawyers involved and a lot of follow-ups and more in-depth questions that they're going to use to try to pry some of that information out in order for the American public to understand the history of the Biden family here. Do you expect that they're going to have any success and make any progress today? Well, uh, I don't know. I, I kind of think that what if uh, he's being counseled by Abby Lowe, his top defense attorney here in town, he's under indictment. So I expect he's going to take the fifth to uh, all these questions. I mean, uh, we have to know uh, all kinds of things about his foreign dealings. Uh, was his father really there in the room uh, when he talked to the Chinese uh, official there to shake him down for $5 million, as he said on the phone to him? Uh, you've got now uh, uh, millions of dollars that are uh, going, that went to the uh, Biden home in Delaware. Uh, there are six suspicious activity reports uh, from the banks on that. They want to know what, what's that all about. So th there's going to be hundreds of questions that will be asked behind closed doors. And so uh, we'll see here uh, in about an hour or so whether uh, he's going to show up. Right. And Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel of the National Legal and Policy Center, thank you. Thank you for having me. Presidential hopeful Nikki Haley gaining momentum. The former South Carolina governor picked up a key endorsement from the free-spirited state of New Hampshire. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on that and a look at the race with the first primaries fast approaching. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu made the announcement he was throwing his weight behind Haley on Tuesday at a town hall event. There was a sweet older woman who has come to a lot of events. And I saw her coming in here, and she said, so are you going to finally endorse Nikki Haley for president? You bet your ass I am. Let's get this thing done. Haley basked in the governor's support, saying it doesn't get any better than this. To go and get endorsed by the live free or die governor is about as rock solid of an endorsement as we could hope for. The move by Sununu is the latest step in his long-running effort to slow down Donald Trump's march to the 2024 GOP nomination and a potential blow to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's campaign, who had hoped to go two for two after winning Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' endorsement. Both states' Republican primaries will be held in January. DeSantis reacted to the news at a town hall in Iowa saying that, 
Even a campaigner as good as Sununu was not going to paper over Nikki being an establishment candidate. Haley has recently picked up some big donors as she rises in the polls. The pair are locked in a bitter battle to emerge as the leading Republican alternative to former President Donald Trump. Haley made her case against Trump a few days ago in Iowa, saying she believes he was the right president back when he was elected. I think he broke the things that needed to be broken. I agreed with a lot of his policies. I had a great working relationship with him. But rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. Haley says you can't have a country in disarray, in a world on fire, and survive this chaos. Trump still enjoys a strong lead, according to the latest polls. A real clear politics poll average shows Trump in front in New Hampshire with over 45 percent. Haley has moved into second there with over 18 percent, with DeSantis slipping down to fourth with over 8 percent. Trump also leads in Iowa, where he has about 50 percent. DeSantis is in second there with nearly 20 percent, and Haley in third with over 15 percent. Meanwhile, a recent Reuters poll has Trump over Biden by 2 percent nationally. But independent candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. could wield a strong influence over the presidential race. The same Reuters poll showed that Kennedy could take more votes from Biden than Trump. Trump's lead grew to five points against Biden when respondents could also vote for Kennedy. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Up next, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and President Biden pushing for aid in Washington. But Biden says he can't promise it'll be there before Christmas, with Republicans leveraging for changes to border policy. A complex hostage rescue turns tragic as the IDF reports on casualties during tense fighting in Gaza. The UN continues putting forward a vote to demand an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Stay with us. Welcome back and good morning. President Biden says he's not making Ukraine any promises on more funding, but is hopeful Congress will come through on negotiations. After meeting yesterday, Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warned that consequences would be swift if money isn't there by the year's end. Both say Ukraine's ability to hold its territory is vital to the world's security and that failure against Russia would embolden other aggressors on the world stage. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the push for more aid to Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met with lawmakers behind closed doors Tuesday on his third trip to the U.S. Capitol since the Russian invasion began. No joint sessions of Congress and appearing no closer in convincing reluctant Republicans to sign off on President Biden's funding request. Biden assures support, but says the U.S. risks losing the ability to help Ukraine react to urgent operational demands. We'll continue to supply Ukraine with critical weapons and equipment as long as we can. Biden says Russian President Vladimir Putin is banking on the U.S. failing to deliver. We need to ensure Putin continues to fail in Ukraine and Ukraine to succeed. And the best way for that to do that is to pass the supplement. Zelensky flat out rejected the idea of giving up any territory to Russia to stop the war, calling the suggestion insane. He says that's because it's not just about territory, but children, families, and part of Ukraine's society. We dream of a Christmas in a peacetime, of course, 
and we are working to turn our battlefield success into peace. Congress has approved no new assistance for Kyiv since Republicans took the majority last January. House Speaker Mike Johnson, after meeting Zelensky, said the Biden administration must provide more details about how the money would be used. What the Biden administration seems to be asking for is billions of additional dollars with no appropriate oversight, no clear strategy to win, and, and none of the answers that I think the American people are owed. The White House told Congress earlier this month the government will no longer have funding to provide Ukraine more weapons after the end of the year. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer maintains the need is urgent. First, the military needs, but second, Europe and many other allies will say, what is going on here? They're not giving, they're not giving them the aid. With just three days left before Congress recesses for the year on Friday, Republicans remain mostly opposed to any passage of a bill that contains over $60 billion in Ukraine aid, unless it comes along with funding to stop illegal immigrants from crossing the southern border. The U.S. has already provided Ukraine $111 billion over the course of the war. Bolstered by U.S. arms, intelligence and humanitarian aid, Ukraine was able to fend off Russia's initial attempt to sweep the country. But Kyiv failed to break through Russian defensive lines in a major counteroffensive push this year. And now Russia is on the offensive in the east. Ukrainian officials say a missile assault on Kyiv Wednesday injured at least 34 people, damaging homes in a children's hospital with debris and shrapnel. Ukraine says its air defense systems downed all missiles targeting its capital and that it was the second missile attack on Kyiv this week. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Over to Israel now, a complex hostage rescue operation ends in tragedy. A woman kidnapped from the Nova Music Festival and a soldier kidnapped while on active duty were both found dead. IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari discusses the discovery. Sadly, we did not reach them in time. Our special forces located the bodies of the hostage inside an underground infrastructure in a densely populated area in Gaza. Hamas is holding our people hostage in brutal conditions while hiding among and under the people of Gaza. Among and under the people of Gaza. This makes our hostage rescue operation in Gaza complex, but it will not deter us. The Israeli army reported today that 10 IDF soldiers were killed in tense fighting in Gaza, including several officers and two senior commanders. The Times of Israel reported that infantry soldiers from the Golani Brigade were carrying out search operations in a heavily fortified Hamas stronghold in northern Gaza. Some were reportedly ambushed and killed. Others died trying to save those ambushed. And it's been over two months since the brutal Hamas attack on Israel. Many Israelis are still being held hostage, but some have been released and they still live in fear after being held captive in the vast underground tunnel network. Two grandparents whose children and grandchildren were held hostage by Hamas are now describing their experience. Entity's Kostemines has the story. Ricky and Remus Aloni had six of their family members in Hamas captivity after October 7th. A temporary truce deal between Israel and Hamas saw five of them return to Israel at the end of November, including their daughter Danielle and her five-year-old girl Amelia, as well as their other daughter Sharon, along with her three-year-old twin daughters Emma and Julie. Now for the first time, they recount the experience. <laughs> היינו צריכים, אחרי יומיים עזבנו, ואמרו לנו שאנחנו יכולים לאסוף כל מה שהם הכינו לנו בחדר. אמרו, בואו, צעצועים, 
אז דניאל התחילה לאסוף דברים ולשים בתיק. ומיליה ככה מסתכלת עליה, היא אומרת לה, אימא, אימא, את בטוחה ש... ש... שאנחנו יכולים? החמאס מרשה לנו לקחת את כל הדברים שבחדר? שרן's husband David was separated from his family a few days before the release and is still in captivity. The implications of living in captivity are still taking their toll on the behavior of the young girls and their mothers. Remus says when his daughter and granddaughter spoke after their release, he could hardly hear their voice. She was speaking like this. So I told her, speak louder. And what we understood later was that in Gaza, they forced them to speak in whispers. And we felt it even more on Sharon and the girls, but it took them two days to speak with a normal voice. Danielle and her daughter Amelia spend most of the time in the tunnels. They were in one room with around eight to ten other people, making it difficult to breathe because of lack of ventilation. The food was very scarce, and Danielle said she would sometimes not eat so that her daughter would have something to eat in the evening. Sharon had lost more than 20 pounds and was physically weak when she was released. She was separated from her daughter for 10 days during the ordeal. Now finally free, the twins still miss their dad, not knowing if or when he will be released. Costa Menes, NTD News. The United Nations General Assembly voted in favor of demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza yesterday. This after the U.S. vetoed a similar resolution last week. While the U.N. vote has political significance, it's non-binding and doesn't carry any legal weight. Unlike the Security Council ceasefire resolution that the U.S. vetoed Friday. This as the FBI and DHS issued a joint statement saying the ongoing war in Gaza could inspire lone actor violence U.S. soil this holiday season. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin will be in Israel this week for key meetings. The White House is warning Israel that its campaign against Hamas is losing international support. President Biden is meeting with families of American hostages today, a White House official told CNN. The families want the U.S. and Israeli governments to work harder on their relatives' release. The U.S. believes seven American men and one woman are still missing after the October 7th attack. Actor Andre Bauer died Monday after a brief illness, according to his publicist. Bauer was best known for his roles in Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Homicide Life on the Street. He won his first Emmy in 1998 for Outstanding Lead Actor in Drama Series for Homicide. Bauer's second Emmy came for his work on the 2006 FX miniseries Thief. He was also nominated four times for Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Bauer was 61. Fed up with the crime, rather than turning to despair, one Oakland resident remained hopeful and through a small gesture sought to bring tranquility to his neighborhood with a Buddha statue. The story of the Oakland Buddha started in 2009 when Dan Stevenson and his wife Lou got tired of the drug dealing, prostitution and garbage being dumped in their neighborhood. Wanting to change the energy, they bought a Buddha statue from Ace Hardware and installed it on the corner of 11th Avenue and 19th Street near their home. 
Since then, the location has grown to be larger than life. It had turned the whole place totally around in its time there. I mean, like, the prostitutions moved out, drugs stopped, garbage stopped. I'd say any place from 50 to 75 people a day hit that place, and sometimes more, because if a tour bus comes through or something, and I don't know who's running that, but people get out and take pictures and stuff, and they all jump back in. Dan is not a Buddhist, but chose the Buddha because he finds him neutral. I, well, I like the uh, solidarity of the guy. You know, I really like uh, uh, contemplation. Quiet contemplation is, uh, Im you know, impressive to me. And, um, and he does that very well. Over time, the altar became an elaborate structure, adding multiple statues like Guan Yin and St. Jude. They also added candles, burning incense, and food offerings. It was built up by Vietnamese locals who made it their duty to maintain the shrine for people to come chant and pray. And whatever it does for them, they seem happier leaving than when they showed up. So it's got to be something good. Jesse, who lives nearby, told NTD News why he likes to stop by once a week to give a prayer. It's feels relevant to maintain well-being in more so than seeking to climb some peak. Another resident, Laura Gerard, said the shrine gets lively on holidays and brings people together. I feel like it brings beauty to the neighborhood, peace. Um, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a, it's a spiritual place. Having survived two attempts of removal, once by criminals and once by the city, the Buddha remains peaceful and here to stay. In Oakland, California, Helen Billings, NTD News. And on that note, we have to wrap up our show, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching and have a great day. I'm Kevin Hogan.